These are Grindstaff publishing audio files. Room to Rome, Chapter 16, Benelux. The train from Paris wound through a drizzling rain up through the French countryside, stopping for a moment in Nancy, then barreled still further north until we crossed the border of Luxembourg. Departing into the open square in front of the train station, the cold evening air hit with a northern ferocity which I hadn't experienced since standing atop an Austrian Alp weeks earlier. Each day grew closer to winter, and I was only going to keep inching nearer to Iceland in the days ahead. Pulling my scarf closer to my neck, I trudged along over the open square and into the darkness of a new city. Within minutes, I found myself crossing an expansive arch bridge overlooking lights far below. Never much of a fan of heights, I focused my eyes at the far end of the bridge and walked even faster than I already had been. After what felt like an hour, I noticed I was on yet another bridge, only this one seemed medieval. The map on my phone assured me I was nearing my hostel as I took in the pristine smelling air and clean stones and buttresses which surrounded me. With a turn I was winding down what felt like a park trail, a place a tourist fresh in a new city tries to avoid, and through trees, nestled between an expansive garden and towering arch bridge were the lights of my hostel. As with so many times before, my heart fluttered with joy and relief at having found my place of residence for the next couple days. I always envisioned the hostel acting as an elusive X on the map of the city. All the treasures scattered about were fine, but the real treasure lie in the small, dingy bed where I would lie my head. The hostel was quite nice, and before long I was sitting in the common room with a cold pilsner in my hand and a three-course Luxembourgish meal in front of me. Fellow tourists, mostly men with German-sounding accents, chatted all around me while a soccer, see football, game played quietly in a corner. There is talk of snow the next day as I curled into my crisp, clean sheets that night, the dumplings and beard still warming my body nicely. The morning arrived with a light dusting of snow on the ground, the day was young and full of the unknown. I rushed up the hill and stood atop the medieval wall, standing next to a fortification tower I looked upon Newminster Alley, with its open court, tall black spire, and leafless autumnal trees lining the curving Alzette River. Of all the cities I had seen thus far, Luxembourg City felt the most medieval. It was something about the walls and buildings which made it seem stuck in a time long ago. A place where one could imagine peasants wandering with contemplative eyes and armed guards using the slits in the walls for their bows. I rushed down into the open court and marveled at it all. Following one of the winding walls, I ascended into stone turrets and all long watchtowers, following still until I ran out of ruins. I doubled back to follow the river and wound up amidst dreary colored houses looking up at a natural fortification wall with clouds hanging low, completing the feel of a medieval city. Children were playing in a park as I ascended a zigzagging staircase and found myself away from the old town district and into the banking sector of one of the richest cities on earth. Soaring multi-storied banks with gold-plated clocks stood tall at street corners, a semblance of the bountiful riches which lie within. The streets were lined with perfectly manicured trees and Christmas decorations hung just so, contrasting boldly with the homeless backpacker vibe I was letting off. I walked along the pristine sidewalks past people dressed in designer fashion and we smiled warmly as we went our separate ways. Next to a stone church I found a lively Christmas market with humble wooden sheds arranged in two rows. Holiday music was playing, the smell of mulled wine and gingerbread tainted the air with seasonal cheer while people of all ages leaned against chest-high tables eating sausages and laughing with glee. 
His smile went across my face as I bit into a juicy bratwurst and drank a black coffee. Watching parents with their children made me miss the home that was waiting for me all too soon. I bought my first real gingerbread man and ate it as I set my sights on the hilltop fortress. With my breath fogging the air around me, I hurried past the Cathedral Notre Dame, stopped for a brief stare at the ceremonial guard outside the Palais Grand Ducal, and through an archway with two medieval towers on either side. Climbing a dirt trail near my hostel, I passed through trees and brush and came to a grass opening with stone walls acting as retaining features to a higher ground. I climbed over the first wall to find a second, this time higher, wall. Once that was climbed, I came to the still higher, more elaborate fortifications of the fortress of Luxembourg. The view of Luxembourg City with the cranes adding on to the prosperous newer sectors seemed so far removed from the stone masonry of that higher elevation. The entire complex was empty of people and many of the towers were open. I climbed a few of them and took photos and finally came to the fortress-turned-museum of Musée Dra Echelon. With rounded towers and a drained moat, the illusion of the medieval city was complete. I wandered the complex high on the hills, smiling and reflecting on where I was and how I'd gotten there. It seemed like it had been so long since I first left America and jotted in my notebook, bulging with tickets and small keepsakes from cities previous, and wrote down some thoughts. The finality of my date of departure was hitting me and the impact of each day was palpable. The morning came with a rush as my feet crunched through the dusting of snow on my way to the train station. A missed train used to bother me, but by that point it seemed commonplace. I waited for the next one to show up without fret. The front page of papers in the train depot told the story of Brussels being on lockdown due to worries of a Paris-style terrorist attack. It seemed I was following the terrorist attacks, being only a few days behind the carnage of capital cities. The countryside scrolled by like a kind of motion picture as we left the riches of Luxembourg City and ventured into rural Belgium. Pockets of snow laying white on fields and on country houses. People at train stops drained from monotony in a world I was so grateful to visit. A quick stop in Brussels, a train change here and there, and we finally arrived in Ghent. It's amazing how different each city feels from one another. Sometimes it's a smell, other times it's a buildings, or people, or just a feeling. Ghent felt welcoming from the start as I walked through an average-looking residential area. Hungry, I stopped into a small kebab shop. Throughout the trip, I found kebab shops to be cheap and fast, perfect to gather my bearings and prepare me for whatever would lie ahead. The man behind the counter had brown skin and an accent which was not Belgian. I ordered what I always ordered, then with a patronizing sneer he asked, Where are you from? It is a simple question, but according to most Americans who had never left the country, is one which should be answered cautiously. Yet after two months of travel, I had found the question to be a gateway to interesting conversations and one I was always eager to answer truthfully. I'm from the United States, how about you? Smiling that patronizing smirk, the man jeeringly said, I figured as much. I am from Turkey. My mother is from Afghanistan, my father is from Iraq. How does it feel being from a country who bullies countries so much smaller than them? I was completely taken aback. Not believing what I had heard, my defenses instantly went up and I felt naked. The small restaurant was filled with 10 people, those of which were all white-skinned and who I believe were Belgian. I, I have no comment. I don't always agree with the politics of where I come from, but I am not my country nor are you yours or your parents theirs. I don't think it is fair to judge someone on that. As if waiting for me to finish, not dependent on the actual words I said, the Turkish man began spouting vitriolic hatred of America and how everyone from there was a capitalist brute who kills people and engages in wars which they have no business in being a part of and went on and on. I didn't know what to do. I had been in this new country for less than an hour, alone with no one who knew where I was, getting braided by a man who knew nothing about me in a restaurant which I entered only to buy a simple meal. This is ridiculous, I said. I'm leaving. 
No, no, my friend, the man said while laughing under his breath. I'll make you whatever you want. I didn't mean any harm. Hungry and embarrassed, I bought my kebab, sat at a window table, and endured the stares from those around me. The kebab was amazing, and I ate it hurriedly, trying to think of what to say before I left. With blood boiling and heart racing, I walked up to the counter to give the man my tray back in a sign of peace. I just wanted to say, one of my best friends back home is from Istanbul, and he has told me numerous stories of the warmth and beauty of his home city. The man looked stunned as my cheeks burned red. I don't think it was fair for you to berate me, but I won't hold a grudge. Teşekkür ederim. Thank you in Turkish. With a great pride, I turned to leave, only to have the man apologize for his behavior. With a warm smile, he asked me about my Turkish friend and how I knew Turkish. I accepted his apology, but confessed I only knew simple phrases of the amazing language. People in the restaurant, those who had earlier been laughing at me and where I came from, all had a confused look on their faces as I left the small kebab shop. I walked along the waterway with pride in my heart. It would have been easy for me to tell the guy to go fuck himself and leave the shop with a burning rage, but instead I kept a cool head and rose above my first bout of country shaming. I was surprised it took so long to rear its ugly head. The strange incident didn't have much time to dwell in my thoughts as the commonplace building soon gave way to gothic architecture of which I had never seen. Amidst the old town district sat my hostel, a 13th century building on the edge of the canal. Entering the building was the stuff of every backpacker's dream. Centuries-old wood gave the hallways an atmosphere of medieval brilliance. After being shown my bed, I walked into the common room with overstuffed chairs and dim lights casting their glow on ceiling-high windows looking out onto the canal. With heart skipping, I hurried out into the dawn air and walked feverishly down the canal, taking in as much of the architecture as I could. Night fell quickly, and the moon peeked through heavy clouds as young people snuggled on benches and photographers captured a beauty one can only find in Europe. I retired back to the hostel and set up my tablet next to a window to find I was happier at the bar. Working in the beer industry back in Oregon, I had heard stories of the quality of Belgian beer. Having waited weeks, I ordered a beer brewed in Ghent and drank deeply. The night was a blur of beer, talking with people from so many different countries, trying to write, failing miserably, comparing American versus Belgian craft beer with a bartender, and finally crashing into my pillow at some ridiculous hour trying to comprehend what kind of heaven on earth I had found. Morning shone bright through a hangover-fueled headache as I walked to a window and realized where I was. With fast travel, and heavy drinking from the night previous, I had experienced a couple times a feeling of, which city am I in? A strange feeling, but one of which pride could be taken, or so I told myself. As I was cobbling together breakfast in the layout in the kitchen, I overheard talk of a free walking tour of the old town district and I jumped at the chance. A group of ten of us wandered around the gothic area of the city for the better part of three hours. Our guy was a quirky Belgian man with an immense knowledge of the city and everyone was happy with the time spent. After the tour, we all went our separate ways and I found myself staring at a castle before walking down a long corridor with glow-in-the-dark painted bears ending at a canal. Leaning against the railing, I heard a yell from across the water. I turned and saw a young guy with curly blonde hair and plastic shopping bag waving his arm, asking if I would join him on the bench. How could I say no? The guy was French, probably in his early 20s, and a joint in one hand and a cheap beer in the other. Without hesitation, he offered me both, but knowing my own dislike for weed, I took a beer. We sat for a half hour, chatting about where we came from, while we were in Ghent, and what our plans were for the evening. It turned out he was backpacking around the northwest section of Europe before he was planning a trip to Australia for a long while. From what I gathered, he was a kid with rich parents and not many ambitions who jumped from city to city hitting raves and having anonymous encounters with the women who frequent such venues. He urged me to go with him to a rave that night, but I declined. Raving wasn't something I was into, and after the night before, I was looking forward to an early night. 
We left the bench and walked around the old town district, drinking beers and talking about life. It was nice to have a conversation with a smart guy with no aspirations who lived in the moment. The entire walk he was stoned out of his mind and would stop mid-sentence to ask a big question. He would point up at the sky only to grab his curly-haired head and explain something ridiculous only to smile and take another drag from his ever-shortening joint. Night came and I thanked him for the beers and walked along a canal to my hostel. It was Thanksgiving back home, but no one in Europe could have cared less. I celebrated with a green soup and soft bread I bought for cheap at a local market earlier in the day. The allure of happy hour was too great and I talked to an American girl until late. We talked about how weird it was to celebrate a holiday in a foreign country, and how our loved ones back home were gathering around a table eating good food and drinking in the warmth of the season. It was just another day in the world and we were lucky to have good beer and great company around us. The beard poured until late once again. Before leaving the hostel the next morning, I was told there was a bomb threat on the tramway. I would have to walk. People were becoming noticeably uneasy about the rash of terrorist-related stories populating in the news in such a short amount of time. With tensions high, I went through town and found my way into the train station, armed guards with heavy body armor milling about with watchful eyes. Part of me saw these men and women as threats, while the other part felt secure besides, who in their right mind would attack a building with that kind of firepower. The wonderfully somber city of Bruges was only a 20-minute train ride away through the rain and heavy gray clouds in near-coastal Belgium. Arriving without any idea of where to go, I ventured down a dirt trail which led into a kind of convent area. Serene is the best word to describe the humble atmosphere acting as a place designed to inspire thought and meditation. Beautiful white swans are floating regally in a large pond in the middle of the small district. I watched them blissfully for some minutes before glimpsing a large tower through bare trees and light fog. I passed bright red door frame houses with ancient shingles and cobblestones glistening from the on-again, off-again range as I neared the towers. From the minimal research I had done between bouts of sipping on good beer and Ghent, I knew those towers were important. The architecture was stunning and the people sparse as I walked over canal bridges which seemed numerous, a bit of a Venice feel, minus the sunshine and smell of pizza. As if looking at a postcard, I found myself in the main square of the old town district looking up at one of the large towers, a belfry to be exact. Jutting up high above anything else surrounding, the medieval bell tower was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Mesmerized, I walked into the courtyard behind it and stood in awe. That feeling of being dumbfounded by the mixture of architecture, atmosphere, and location never seemed to dull. Whenever those three elements came together, it was like getting kicked in the head in the best possible way. After I picked my mouth up off the ground, I walked back into the square and was amazed, again, by the beautiful Belgian architecture of the buildings surrounding it. With sharp edges and ascending steps, the facades of buildings in that corner of the world is all its own. The colors were fantastic as well. One building was even painted pink, a classic pink, which is a perfect mixture. Once my awe wore off, I walked the five minutes through winding streets, past another belfry, and through a complete cobblestone reconstruction zone to get to my hostel. Walking in, I was greeted by a Belgian man who could only be described as apathetic. He didn't give two shits, and he wanted everybody to know it. We exchanged pleasantries. As I was signing paperwork, he bluntly exclaimed, I'm surprised you didn't cancel your plans to come to Belgium. So many Americans are doing that. It seemed like a strange way to invite me to his city, but we talked a bit about what he meant. The terrorists, they seem to have found their way to Belgium, he said with a serious face. We talked about why terrorists would want to populate Belgium, why people shouldn't change their plans just because a bomb might go off, and how strange it was for me, an American, to be that close to real-life terrorism. As an isolationist country, for reasons of geography or by choice, we have avoided the proximity to terrorism with a few grand exceptions. 
But being on a continent, or better yet, in a governing body such as the European Union where everyone, no matter how different their politics or religion, can intermix with a different feeling. It felt like anyone could attack anything at any time, and no amount of border control or lockdown could fix that. The man behind the counter was no longer apathetic and was great conversation until a fellow backpacker walked in and I made my way up to my room. A walking tour was starting soon after I had checked in and followed the group of dapper-looking backpackers to a pub to start it off. We walked around every historical part of Bruges, including the convent with the swans I had seen earlier, saw a church proclaiming to contain a vial of Christ's blood brought back from the Crusades, learned a bit about Flanders and the history of the people that once was in Bruges, sampled Belgian chocolate at a traditional chocolatier shop, and ended with a tour of a beer museum overlooking the main square complete with two of Bruges' finest beverages. With night beginning to fall, I wanted to get out of the tourist-filled town square. During the tour, I had heard there were traditional windmills on the edge of town and set up looking for them, following a long canal with beautiful housing lining it. With the lights of street lamp illuminating the low-hanging clouds, I found a path which took me past a few windmills situated on mounds of earth. With no one around, the mills seemed eerie and inactive, a welcome reprieve from the bustle of the day. I stuck headphones in my ears and walked back along a canal toward my hostel. I told myself tonight I'd be restful, early to bed kind of night. Nothing could have been further from the truth. As I opened the hostel door, I was met with a cacophony of upbeat music, chatter, and the man behind the counter holding a beer. Tonight, we are having beer tasting. You should join us. How can I resist? With a quick change of clothes, I hustled down to the common room just in time for the get-to-know-your-roommate kind of period. The large couch I was sitting on was soon jammed with five people my age talking about all manner of travel, careers, school, and general ambitions in life. The girl next to me was Canadian, in Bruges for a business trip, and was looking to have a fun night before she went home the next day. We talked for the entire hour until a young woman who I could only describe as classy slutty rang a small bell and began the night's festivities. There would be six different styles of Belgian beer, half-brewed in Bruges. We would get a 12-ounce glass of each, and we would discuss how we liked each successive beer as we went on. After working in the craft beer industry for a couple of years, I was extremely excited. Within our group of 10, which was gaining people exponentially as time went on, there was quite a bit of beer knowledge to pass around. After the third beer, most of us were using the 20 minutes between beers to yell over the top of one another, make jokes, and divulge ridiculous tidbits about ourselves. In short, we were getting drunk. The beers kept pouring and the crowd got bigger and hosts started drinking. By the end, it was chaos, and the entire room was bulging with drunken hilarity and fun. It was midnight before the beers were finished and the room split into two groups. The first group, mostly full of a group of German guys, a few especially drunk Americans and girls who wanted to dance, had decided to find a club which the host guaranteed would be a good time. The rest of us, maybe eight people, wanted more of a laid-back atmosphere and decided to wander into the old town square to see what was available. The five-minute walk from before was now a disaster. It would have been easier herding cats through a maze than it was guiding eight twenty-something backpackers in a straight direction at midnight on a weekday in Bruges. Once in the square, we all decided on an Irish bar, found a table, and ordered more drinks. Beer began to flow, and conversation took wild turns as we all forgot our inhibitions and drank pint after pint of beers from all over the world. People made vows to get married, others exchanged phone numbers and added each other as friends on social media, but in the end, we all got to know each other at that most primitive level of drunkenness. As the night wore on, people dropped out of the bar one by one. I left with a couple other guys once a bartender began stacking barstools on the tables. After all the drinking I had done thus far on my trek through Europe, I was in much better shape than some of my comrades. Somehow we made it back to the hostel in one piece, only to find a few couples making out and groping each other in dark corners as we stumbled up the staircase. It was almost four as I climbed into my bunk, having drank more beers than I can remember, or care to for that matter.
Morning came with a dull roar as my alarm shouted. After four hours of sleep and who knows how many drinks, my body was feeling less than amazing. A quick shower helped ease the pain, and as I walked back into my room to pack my bags, a young American walked in looking worse than how my head felt. After a few minutes of talking to him, I recognized him from the beer tasting from the night previous. Apparently, he was part of a go-to-the-club party and drank way too much and ended up pissing on the door of a church around 4 in the morning. The local police picked him up and threw him in jail for the night, but not before charging him a fine and threatening to kick him out of the country. The young American didn't seem too upset. He had aspirations of becoming a writer one day and it would make a great story. Walking to the bus station in that promising early morning glow, I reflected on the night before. It was days like those where I felt sad about spending less than 24 hours in a city. Had I really experienced what the city had to offer? I didn't have time to dwell on those kinds of questions. My tickets were bought, bags were packed, and a form of transportation was ready to take me to a new land with new experiences and novel things to see. There is always time to travel slow and experience things to their fullest. It was rapid travel which can only happen when one is young. The train was traveling back to Ghent. I was reading a book about American politics in the 1970s and a young man across from me was looking at me over a book about Che Guevara. The man, actually about my age, and I started talking about our time in Bruges. It turned into an amazing conversation which led to talks of other things and future and past travels. The train stopped in Ghent and it turned out we were both on the same bus at Amsterdam. Excited to be in a city I'd already been, I hurriedly showed my companion the old town district with his gothic architecture and talked about all manner of things, including the drunk stone guy who I had talked to only days before, which he countered with similar stories of what seemed to be a template for the drunken stone guy everyone has met at least once in their life. With a lapse in time, we rushed to our green bus with the word Amsterdam shining on its destination plate and leaped aboard with minutes to spare. The American and I talked about a lot in the four and a half hours it took to get to Amsterdam. It turned out my companion had grown up in California. Once he finished high school, he had tried his hand at college, partied too hard, and decided to take a break and travel. He decided rural Mexico would be the most appropriate place for a young man in his situation, so he packed his bags, drained his bank account, not tell his parents, and head off to who the fuck knows Mexico. The times were great at the beginning. Everything was cheaper and the girls were dark and beautiful. Before long, the money ran out and he looked for work in the field, soon finding employment on some crop out in the middle of nowhere. Times were great once again until he got sick. It was pneumonia. Pneumonia in the lungs of a young man who no one with any kind of insurance knew where he was. Those around him took him to a local doctor who did the best they could, which resulted in a two-month stay in a bed from complications, fever, and infection. The guy grew up during that period and gained clarity on the meaning of life and how precious each day truly is. He made his way back to the United States, found a well-paying job, saved up just enough money to travel to Europe, and now he sat next to me. I asked what he would do with a story like that, and he said he wanted to write a book, a book which is nearly complete. After many stories and pondering of the meaning of life and what the future would bring us, a man who had gotten pneumonia and I went our separate ways, once a bus stop in Amsterdam. I'd only 30 hours before I moved on, and I hadn't done really any research on what to see or do, but I was in Amsterdam and ready to make the most of it. As with so many times before, the first objective was to find the hostel I had booked the day previous. Using a new map app on my phone, I quickly found how to get to my bed for the night. I wound through the downtown area, past the red light district, through the Christmas decorations bright and jolly, and through the busy Amsterdam Central Station. It turned out my hostel was on the other side of the river from the Central Station, so I boarded a ferry, made my way across, and found my comfortable hostel with ease. With a quick turnaround, I was back in the heart of Amsterdam in the early part of the evening amidst a glow of lights and throngs of people ready to be washed with the experiences the city had to offer. My first stop, as I imagine is the case for most young men, was a red light district. 
I had no intention of engaging in any kind of sexual act, but my curiosity for the infamous area was too strong to not see what there was to offer. Within a short amount of time, I was unimpressed. From stories I now know to be embellished, I was expecting naked women in windows caressing their sensitive parts and propositioning men with zest and vigor. Instead, women exuding a classy vibe sat semi-awkwardly behind glass windows knocking, yes knocking, at young men such as myself hoping for them to show interest, exchange payment, and be allowed behind closed doors to engage in extremely defiant sexual acts. It didn't take me long to understand the game and I walked up and down the streets, passing countless windows with women for all types of fetishes and smiled sheepishly at the knocks. After walking for some time, I stopped in front of a window advertising different strains of marijuana and began thinking of how I should spend my 30 hours in Amsterdam. It didn't take long to decide on the weed allure. Throughout my life, I have smoked weed numerous times. I'm definitely not a recreational pot smoker, but I've had periods where I've smoked two or three times a month. Once I reached college, I began drinking more than smoking until I gave up marijuana altogether, except for the random college parties here and there where I would have two hits and I'd get extremely paranoid and ridicule myself for imbibing in the purple haze. Despite this information, I decided it fitting to get high in Amsterdam. I walked up and down the streets looking for the place I deemed fit to fix my craving and finally settled on a green sign coffee shop with a conspicuous marijuana leaf on the window. As soon as I walked in, I saw a table full of 18-year-old girls, each taking turns hitting a three-foot-tall hookah, each laughing maniacally after they had done so. I never bought weed in public before, so when I bellied up to the bar and two extremely stereotypical Jamaican guys with a Rastafari vibe came over to help me, I began sweating and was beyond nervous. They guided me through the complex menu of weights and letters until I settled on a piece of dessert called a space cake. I told the guys behind the counter I was a lightweight, but they both assured me it was a mild blend. It would not make me freak out or get too high. Trusting them, I bought the cupcake-shaped cake, took it to a corner table, and began slowly and deliberately consuming the edible. From experience, I knew edibles were dangerous. Smoking the herb is more immediate in its effect, while eating something with marijuana in it takes a bit of time to get absorbed into the bloodstream, so the high can come on hours later without any real warning. It must have been the atmosphere, or the day glow painted walls, the arcade vibe in the back of the building, or the simple act of being in a city such as Amsterdam, but in the end I ate all the cake in a matter of 40 minutes. I left the coffee shop feeling completely normal, put on my headphones and walked along the canals of Amsterdam underneath the lights of the enormous Christmas displays hanging above. The canals were beautiful in the night, with little phrases such as love or peace or hope traced in twinkle lights above bridges, with couples holding hands and snuggling into each other as they explored the streets in the late November night. My music was hitting me on all cylinders as the weed began peaking my senses. The lights grew brighter and my hands felt lighter as I continued to walk up and down the streets, into shops selling interesting clothes and into glass shops with some of the most intricate glassware I'd ever seen. About an hour after leaving the coffee house, my music began making me paranoid, and I felt like people were staring at me, judging me. The lights I had found beautiful not long before seemed glaring and much too bright for any sane person to handle. My body felt like a balloon, too full of air, and my lungs were too inflated. Paranoia began to swell from deep within and my brain began to experience the fear, the all-too-familiar brute which saturates my brain with all things terrible and disparaging. The fear is the reason I stopped smoking weed entirely. It was one thing to have to deal with it by myself in my apartment, but it was an entirely different beast to manage in the bustling city streets of one of the most traveled cities in the world. Trying to collect myself, I tugged my headphones out of my ears and stood next to a glass window with an enormous poster of marijuana plants behind it. A nagging feeling from deep in my brain told me I had to get to my hostel. It was now a mission. The strength of the high just kept coming. As I walked through the throngs of people on my way to the central station, it felt like everyone in the Netherlands was looking right into my eyes. 
People seem to ooze past me, and the lights from the decorations above have a strange, ugly sheen I'd never seen before. The central station was an absolute nightmare of people with their eyes and security guards sizing me up, knowing something was amiss. Somehow, I made it to the ferry, clambered on, and found a corner seat and tried not looking conspicuous. I'm sure the farthest thing I could have seen at that point. The ferry docked and I hurried toward the hostel, past the doors, through the common room filled with fellow backpackers playing games and drinking cool drinks. I found my room, my bed, took off my shoes in what felt like an eternity, curled into bed and watched a romantic comedy all while my head was reeling with the effects of the mild space cake from the Jamaican Rastafarians and the Green Label coffee shop in the heart of Amsterdam. My eyes opened the next morning and I sat up in my bottom bunk with head spinning and eyes unable to focus. A shower and heavy breakfast helped to rid my brain of the cobwebs, but even as I walked into the crisp morning air and made my way across a drizzling river, my body didn't feel right. I was experiencing a marijuana hangover, the same kind of feeling which drove me to quit smoking weed altogether years ago. I walked into the city center from the night before and saw the gross remnants of the party city. Vomit land puddles and corners and the smell of urine was strong in different sections, the ugly underbelly of a city which prides itself in sin. Making my way through the red light district, I saw an opportunity to take a few pictures. Not of the women, but of the red lights which surrounded their glass enclosures. Turning down a particular street where a large church runs parallel to a few women's windows, I snapped the photo of the interesting juxtaposition. Before I knew what was happening, a prostitute, maybe in her late 50s, ran out of the door in skimpy lingerie, yelling at me in a thick Dutch accent. Give me that fucking camera! She was furious, and, not wanting confrontation, I walked hastily the opposite direction. I turned down this street and that, thinking she would have had some kind of pimp or guard following after me, but that may have been the weed talking from the night before. The majority of that day was spent walking through the main centers of Amsterdam, past a large park next to the Van Gogh Museum where there was a protest and concert happening. I tried finding windmills on the edge of town, but they were too far. In the end, I walked non-stop for the entire day until around 8 that night I found the bus depot. The overnight bus to London loaded in the dark, rainy night. With all the excitement from the last few days, it didn't take long to find a comfortable position and let my heavy eyelids close from exhaustion. Twelve hours later, I would be in London. I could never have guessed what lied between Amsterdam and that famous metropolis. End of chapter.